This is the fifth of five talks by John Sutherland on the Brahma Viharas. It was given at Saragordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on October 11th, 
koans and in there and the line by not holding to fixed views. And you know, there's a way in which we could say that if we just did that, kind of the rest would unfold on its own. Um, and the other thing is that this kind of turn it makes at the end, because it's speaking so directly and specifically about our, our relationships, and not only with other human beings, but it says with, with all beings, you know, um, of all kinds. And then, and then it does this kind of turn at the end, where it says, being free from all sense desires is not born again into this world. And I know when I read that, I have this kind of, hold on, didn't we just describe a, a, a way to kind of have heaven on earth? And why do we want to cut out immediately? Why do we want to leave? So, um, with this quite beautiful ideal in mind, I wanted to talk about uh, what it might be like not to take the first exit out but to, um, to make a, a strong commitment to bringing loving-kindness into the world and for that to be enough. That it's not we don't do that so that we don't come back. We do that because um, it's kind of, it supports the best of what's possible on, on this planet. Okay, so... One of the things I've kind of gone back and forth about is to use the word loving-kindness to translate uh, what is metta in, in Pali or Maitri in Sanskrit, or to use loving-kindness or to use love. And sometimes love just seems more straightforward to me. Why not just call it what it is? Why, not, why, why sort of modify it in some way? But um, at the moment, what's, what's occurring to me is that love as we use it is a really broad word that covers a lot of territory. I mean, we can mean a lot of different things by love. And maybe by translating meta as loving kindness, we're saying it's not that whole big, messy, extensive sense of, of um, feeling that love encompasses, but it's a very particular kind of love. Um, and how I would describe that at the moment is a caring for another, or caring for another's, or caring for a situation that is, to the extent possible, free of self-interest or ulterior motive. So that when I say loving kindness, that's the love I'm speaking about. A a love that is free from self-interest or from ulterior motive. And um, a lot of times in these conversations, we've brought up the difference between detachment and non-attachment. And this seems to me to be maybe a way to really help make that distinction. That non-attachment is the same kind of freedom from self-interest or ulterior motive. So it's an open uh, and a spacious place, not a cold place, not a removed place. Does that make a kind of sense? Okay. Um, In in the traditional Theravadan teachings, the oldest level of Buddhist teachings, every virtue, like loving-kindness, has a a far enemy and a near enemy. And the far enemy is the thing that that the virtue antidotes, so that loving-kindness antidotes hatred and antipathy. Um, which makes you know, obvious sense. 
The near enemy is trickier because the near enemy can be quite like the virtue and can be difficult to distinguish between the virtue and the near enemy, and that's a place we can often get get caught. So the near enemy of um, of loving kindness is desire, and my understanding of this is. Desire is what happens, in, in this formulation, I'm not talking about every meaning of desire, which is also a big word that covers a lot of territory and can mean a lot of different things. But in this use, I think desire is what happens when that self-interest and that ulterior motive come in, when it gets mixed in. Then you've moved off of loving kindness to its near enemy desire. Um, and that's, that's a kind of discrimination that you need to keep making over and over again because that line can get really blurred and desire has all of these um, sort of immediately reinforcing <laughs> effects, you know, if it's if our desire is satisfied, that can make it um, seem quite attractive. Um, so so that's the that's the, the sense of the love part and then the kindness um, comes in with uh, the root meaning of meta, which is uh, from a word that means friend. So meta is the activity of the friend. Um, and that's where I think the kindness is important, because it reminds us of what it means to love as a friend. And um, I'll talk some more about this in a little bit with some, some other uh, associations. but. When you read the Buddhist teaching about friendship, of, of which there is some, one of the cardinal virtues in friendship is constancy. And I think that's really important with loving kindness, that one of the ideas about loving kindness is that it's, a, that it's constant, that, it, that as opposed to desire, which waxes and wanes depending on you know other circumstances, there's a sense that friendship should be constant through thick and thin, through difficulty and, and joy, um, and that that's what we can really give each other as friends, and that's the, what loving kindness is about as well. So I'm sure that some of you have um, practiced uh, meta meditation, loving kindness meditation, which is a um, really common Theravadan meditation that's used in a lot of other schools as well. And um, that's essentially, a, a, to, to really shorten it down, it's a, um, it's a practice where you do a kind of guided visualization for yourself, where you visualize um, a benefactor, someone who's, who's giving something really important, and um, someone you love, someone you feel neutral about, that's a really interesting exercise because sometimes you can discover that you don't really feel neutral about anybody. And that sort of points out how much judgment we have about everybody all the time. But anyway, so that can be instructive. A neutral person and then an, an enemy. And also oneself, that you direct loving kindness toward your, yourself as well. Um, and the kind of classic formulation of what you say in meta meditation to these various figures and to yourself is um, may you be free from danger, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical happiness, which you can interpret as health, you know, and may you have ease of well-being, um, which is a great sort of clunky formulation that I think speaks about a kind of peace 
in your life and a sense of a sense of well-being. And then um, some some people like Thich Nhat Hanh simplify that down even further to a kind of inhale exhale. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. Um, there's a, there's a, this is my understanding of the theory behind that kind of meditation, which is quite different than what we do in Kanzen, but I think is really important and, and can be, has an important complementarity with what we're doing in, in common practice. The idea with something like meta meditation is that if you're, if you're all worked up um, by, by anger, say, you can substitute compassion for anger, and you can be all worked up about compassion. That if you've got a feeling going, you can just switch. <laughs> you can use all that energy in a different direction if you consciously do that, if you consciously make that kind of switch. Um, so it, when you're feeling hatred or aversion or antipathy, um, you can take all that energy and put it at the service of loving kindness in, in itself. And when, when you do that, the, um, the positive emotion antidotes the negative one, which is to say that really what's happening is that it's suppressing it for the moment um, by replacing it with something else. And this is the place that feels quite different than what, than what Cohen practice is about, which is never about suppressing something. So why is that helpful? Um, I think it's helpful because uh, one of the foundations of koan practice is that when we're caught in negative states, when we're caught in anger and hatred and um, depression and defensiveness and all the things we can think of, we're caught in a less realistic view of the way things are because we're stuck in something inside ourselves that's partial. You know, something's taken over and is filling up all the space. But that, the view we have when we're really angry or the view we have when we're really depressed, that's, it's not a realistic view because it's so narrow. It's not including the whole bandwidth of everything that's true. So you bring in something else. You bring in, if you're, if you're feeling that hatred, you bring in loving kindness because it widens out the bandwidth. It allows for a more whole and realistic picture of, um, of the way things actually are. And I think sometimes um, when we're doing Zen and koan practice, having that kind of really simple, clear, specific thing to do can be helpful when we're in the throes of something, when we're feeling really possessed, as we've talked in the past, by a negative emotion. Just bring in a positive one and, and see what happens and see if you can begin to feel that suddenly you move from a less rea- realistic to a more realistic um, sense of reality, actually. Um, and I think that's, that's important because um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what a rigorous practice loving kindness is it's not about niceness. It's not about being nice. It's really, really hard and really demanding and really a commitment if we, if we take it up. And so if we think about it as, um, one way to think about it being that it makes us more realistic, that's not, it's, not, it's not about it making us nicer. It's about making us more realistic about life. Um, 
Okay, so the practice of loving-kindness always has to begin, and this feels very Zen, with the process of kind of cleaning out, cleaning out the gunk, cleaning out the stuff that gets in the way of a more realistic view, that gets in the way of a more open heart. And um, here I think it's important that that meta meditation, as I just described it, was first taught by the Buddha to a group of monks who he'd sent out to go deep into the forest to meditate. And when they got there and started to meditate, there were some tree spirits who were not happy about having these human intruders in their part of the forest. And so they were harassing the monks and making it really difficult and actually terrifying them. So they came back to the Buddha saying, we're really terrified, could you send us somewhere else? And he taught the meta-meditation as an antidote to fear. So that that seems really important to me, that it wasn't about go out and be nice, go out and do good things for people. It was deal with your fear and deal with your fear this way. So that feels like the first step. Is there an obstacle to loving kindness? Of course there is, and all of us there is. How do you work with that? Um, so they went back into the forest and they sat down and, and instead of doing a kind of you know, quiet, silent meditation, they did loving kindness meditation. And something happened, and the situation changed, and the tree spirits decided they kind of liked this energy being brought into their part of the forest, and ended up sitting with them. And so they were all doing loving kindness together. You know, and so it's a fable. But, but, it's, but it's important for that sense of deal with your fear first, deal with your hatred first, deal with your defensiveness first, deal with, you know, whatever it is, um, that's where you start. So you release whatever it is that's hindering loving kindness. And, um, you know, that's a really important theme in Zen, that when we, when we are cultivating something like loving kindness, um, we're not bringing it to the situation like some kind of commodity, like, you know, why don't you go over for dinner? Great, I'll bring the wine. You know, I'll bring the loving kindness. It's not like, it's not like that. Fortunately, it's not like that. Really, um, it's about understanding that loving kindness is inherent in any situation and in ourselves as well. So sort of inside and outside, loving kindness is inherent. And, um, and our job is to, um, in the words of, of Chan, the Chinese said, to liberate that loving kindness that's inherent in any situation, rather than, you know, sort of haul it in and um, and, and pass it around. Um, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, but I want to I want to um, describe this sense of. of loving kindness as a, as a really rigorous practice. When I was talking about compassion in July, one of the things we spoke about was how compassion has to be really specific. It has to be really particular. It has to be about this situation, what's happening right now. Compassion isn't general. It's, it only ever arises out of the particulars of a given situation. The other person's um, situation, the situation around you and, and you yourself. Loving kindness is different. Loving kindness, in my understanding, is by its nature universal and general. We are invited to 
bring loving kindness to every situation in exactly the same way. It's not particular. So both of those things are important. To be able to <clears throat> to come to and, and look at the particular and to have a, a response to that, and also to bring this thing that isn't dependent on the circumstances, this loving kindness. Um, it's, it's not dependent on another's behavior. There's no self-interest, there's no ulterior motive. We don't offer loving kindness only when someone's doing something that we like, or when someone's doing something that we feel sorry for, you know. Um, the invitation is to bring loving kindness all the time, no matter what. And that's the rigor of the practice. That's hard to do. Um, and I think that that's also what dis- distinguishes loving kindness in this sense from love. Love, you know, a lot of love, not all of love, there is a kind of um, unconditional love, but a lot of love is really dependent on circumstances and how people are behaving and what's going on and how we're feeling and all of that. This isn't that. This is something that, um, that that is our constant attitude. So we come back to that sense of the word meta being rooted in friend. We have a constant friendliness to whatever's going on, and that's that's rigorous. Um, what we're doing is a couple of things. One is that we are committing to standing on the real ground as much as we can. And what I mean by the real ground is the place where we know that we and everything are connected to each other. That is the ground we are invited to stand on through loving kindness, where it's it's all connected, it's all one thing. So we're going to stand on that ground. That's the first thing. That's the... That's our, our standpoint to begin. And the second thing is we're going to assume that loving kindness is always inherent, is always potential in any situation. And we're going to commit to being the person, the community, you know, however you want to see it, who blows on the embers of loving kindness in any situation, no matter what. No matter the particulars, we say we're the ones who will blow on the embers. We're the ones who will um, allow the fire of loving kindness <clears throat> to um, to blaze up. Um, I wanted to give a sort of down and dirty example of, uh, of what I'm talking about. And um, I hope so. I, I want to feel the hardest thing I could think of at the time. And the hardest thing I could think of was something that Elie Wiesel writes about in one of his books, where he talks about when he was a, a teenager in a concentration camp, one of the camp commandants, the Germans, was dying and called Wiesel to his bedside, to his deathbed, and said, um, I've done horrible things, I know I've done, I'm a Nazi in a concentration camp, and I need one Jew to forgive me before I die. And 
because all the reports said he stood up and walked out of the room. He couldn't do it. So this story was sent to a whole bunch of Jewish theologians and a whole bunch of Christian theologians with the question, what should he have done? Was he right to not forgive? And universally, as a body, the Jewish theologians said, um, the only person who can forgive is the person who was wronged. And in this case, the people who were wronged are dead, so is there, there's no possibility of forgiveness. He was right not to forgive. And Christian theologians wrote back universally to a person saying, Christ commands us to turn the other cheek. It is our duty to forgive, even in a circumstance like that. So here we've got these two diametrically opposed responses to this you know, really deep question. And um, so, so then I began to use about what's the third thing? You know, what's the sideways move? Is there, is, there, is there no reconciliation possible between those viewpoints, or is there something that can happen? And um, the, the response that came back to me came from the most unlikely of sources, which is someone said to me, you have to check out the last few minutes of the last episode in the last season of the TV show 24. There's this amazing thing, and I talk about an unlikely place to find a resolution to this question. So I did, you know, I looked at this, and there is this amazing thing that happens at the end of the last season. Almost the realest thing I've ever seen. On te- the thing on television that felt most like I could just completely understand and relate to. And um, just in a, in a nutshell, what happens is that Jack Bauer, who's the hero, anti-hero, um, who's been a federal agent, who's, who's done a lot of really, really bad things in the name of protecting Americans from terrorists, is dying. He's on his death, and he has just a few hours to live. And um, he, he calls, he asks for someone to come to his bedside, and it's an extremely unlikely person. It's the imam of the local mosque with, with whom he's had a run-in earlier in the show and treated really badly. But that's who he calls, because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know where else to turn. And the imam comes and uh, sits down next to him, and basically the same thing happens. Jack Bauer says, I've done these horrible things in my life, and now I'm dying. Can you forgive me? And the imam begins kind of from, from the Jewish perspective, interestingly enough, and says, um, but it's slightly different. He says, I, I'm not in a position to, I'm, I'm not that person who can forgive you. I'm not you know, big enough or wise enough or good enough. To, to offer you forgiveness. But what I can offer you is to sit with you as two men who have done horrible things in our lives for which we feel great remorse. And I will sit with you like that. And he took his hand. And the end of the scene is the two of them sitting there like that. And to me, that was the third thing. You know, that was the, the reconciliation of the opposites. Um, and that's loving kindness. Loving kindness is the willingness to let ourselves be cracked open so that the radiant world can come through us and meet the radiance that's already in the world but often hidden. And to be, you know, to, to stand there for that. And that it seemed to me that that's what the Imam was doing. 
this is what I can give. I can be completely with you here and not make a separation between us. And that felt like a profound kind of, um, of loving kindness. So, um, oh gosh, almost out of time. The, the, so the, the last thing I do want to say is that uh, every tradition has its shadows. And I think one of the shadows in Zen is that we can make a big split between the radiant world, you know, where we have these sort of grand pronouncements about things just as they are, you know, um, where, which feels so distant, you know, and so removed and so, so kind of, yeah, but, you know. And then we have this other side, which is, I think, sometimes an overemphasis on what's wrong with us, what's, what the problems in our psyches, the difficulties we have, the things we need to work with. And the split can feel so wide that it's hard, you know, it's hard to know how those two things relate to each other. There's that absolute radiant world that's perfect and it's just as it is, and then there's these psyches we live inside, which can be really problematic and difficult at times. And um, it feels tremendously important to say that those worlds are not so separate. And one of the things that makes the bridge is, is loving kindness. Um, is to take up that rigorous, difficult, uh, challenging, never-will-leave-us-alone practice of making ourselves available to be cracked open so that the radiant world pours into the everyday world. Um, and we're willing, to do, we're willing to do the work to clear the difficult stuff out so that that can um, that's not that's not being nice. <laughs> that's something kind of much bigger, and um, probably something none of us will perfect in our lifetimes. But something we can move closer and closer and closer to. The more we're willing to say, "Yeah, I take up this practice of loving kindness." Um, so, so finally, um, it, it makes me think of something that. The Israeli politician Shimon Peres said once when someone was talking, you know, about the 49,000 light at the end of the tunnel in the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and and um, Shimon Peres said, "Hey, we've got the light. What we need is the tunnel," which I thought was just brilliant, you know. <laughs> and that's what loving kindness is to me. It's making the tunnel. You know, it's being willing to create the tunnel that makes the bridge, that makes the connection from the world of the everyday to that um, to that world that is also the everyday world that we forget. Um, we make the tunnel with loving kindness. That's one of the ways we do it, and that's one of the reasons I think it's such an important, um, crucial, vital practice—not just for ourselves, but for the world as well. Um, okay, I'm going to stop there because it's way late. But any any questions or comments before we close? These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at JonesSutherlandDharmaWorks.org.